0: Fourteen verses 22 through 33. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. Come. Those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let us pray. Precious Heavenly Father, thank you for these words of doubt and faith, Lord. Thank you for this story. And as Robert comes this morning to preach to us on the only importance of faith, may our eyes and our ears be open to hear what you have us, hear what you have for us.
1: Summer of 1996, the Olympics were in Atlanta, and I got the privilege to be there all summer with a group called Campus Crusade for Christ. It's called Crew now. Uh, they soften the name a bit, I guess, but it's uh, called Crew. and I was there all summer. There were 60 college students from around the nation and five staff. I was one of the staff, Danny McKinney and I led the men, and Christy and Laura And a beautiful brunette named Susan led the women. And I was smitten with Susan. I had met her the summer before in Colorado. We had one year of a long-distance relationship. And this summer in Atlanta, when it was coming to an end, I had called her dad to get his approval for her hand. And I had a ring burning a hole in my pocket. And I knew I had to do something special because it would be one of those nights. Men, you feel my pressure, right? It's just one of those nights where the wife will be asked about it for the rest of her life. Show me the ring. At least that happens for the first several months. And then how did he do it? How did he propose? So there was a lot involved, included a chapel, a guitar, a song, a poem, a bended knee, a question, that sort of thing. But it it began with a, a small plane. And I mean a small plane that sounded like a lawnmower, a really bad lawnmower that needed service. And we had to wear headsets. But when we got there, uh, it was, we were in Dahlonega, north of there. And this guy took us in the mountains. Susan asked the question on August 1st, 1996. She said, who is the pilot? And I said, some guy Danny knows. And she said, he looks really young. And I said, yeah, he just is about to graduate from Georgia Tech. And what she didn't know is that I had paid him, tipped him extra to fly some tricks to kind of swoon down into the mountains and kind of you know act like there's not enough clearance and then push up on the lever and we go. And it was really a really a good evening that led to a question a proposal where she said yes but that night she really wanted to know who's the pilot. Of course she was so swept up in her love for me that it mattered little but hey listen all of us on a journey, if you will. All of us, as we walk through your life, my life, we kind of want to know if somebody's in charge. We kind of want to know what's next. We, we want an adventure. We want to be swept up in it. We want love and romance. We want to live in a bigger story than our own, but we want to know who's the pilot. Who is the pilot, and what does the pilot offer? Is the pilot trustworthy. We're in a series, a five-week series. There's five Sundays in the month of August and we're in this five-week series called Why Faith Matters. And in week one, we looked at how to have a faith that you can keep. In John eight chapter 31 chapter 8 verse 31 and 32 formed our framework the the last half of that passage is the the words have been inscribed on more universities and more walls than in higher education and medicine than any other words ever spoken Jesus is like that he says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free and it was the word know that we talked about how to keep a how to have a faith that you can keep and by the way be glad that you keep is to know we talked about faith and reason, faith and knowledge. That was week one. Week two, last week, we talked about uh, just the difference of faith community can make. And Romans 1.12 is where we were. That formed the backdrop of let us, may we, be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Notice the, the passion of the plurality there. May we be encouraged mutually, one another, with each other's faith and we talked about Acts 2. We pointed there Acts 2:42 to 47 and we learned from the early church how they their faith was mutually beneficial and we we said that you you, you know you got to you got to be real and that you got to move beyond what you feel. The early church could have plenty of reasons. They like us have excuses not to show up, not to be involved, but they ordered their lives around practices. They said we are going to show up and we are going to be devoted. They're not going to dabble with it. They're not going to dabble. They're going to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship of prayer. And we see what God did. And so we also said beyond uh, those other points of just, you know, being real and moving beyond what you feel is to share your life with zeal. And we looked again at Acts. It says, hey, share your stuff. Uh, some of you are funny, you, you talk to me uh, as a pastor and you let your guard down a little bit and you ask me about money and I love to see you get nervous about money. Who's, who's not nervous about money, right? It's, it's such a, it's, it, we put so much of our security in it and that means so much of our anxiety is going to be in it. But I love it when you process with me, can, can I serve God and have an abundant life in Jesus without giving this area of my life uh, to God? But share your stuff with zeal, your stuff, share your stuff and share your story, and that's what we talked about. Backing up, just some bonus content today. I've really enjoyed the interaction of mostly via email, a couple of in-person conversations. But just, you asked me, Robert, what does it mean from Peter, what we talked about, uh, to, to add to your faith knowledge? What does it mean to, to really know? We, when we talk about faith, we talk about the perplexity of it. Remember Hebrews 11 tells us what it is, and you read it, you quote it, you memorize it, and then you're still left not knowing really what faith is. But faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, or one version says the conviction of things. But if you look at assurance, and evidence and conviction, that's really positive. But the, the things hoped for and the things not seen, I mean, is it just a fairy tale, a nursery rhyme, a lullaby? Is there substance to this? And so my challenge for everybody in the room, especially anyone tempted or know a loved one that's losing their faith or leaving the faith, or is the popular word today, deconstructing their faith, add to your faith knowledge. And li- li- this is what faith is, like science answers some questions. Hear me, let science answer those questions. And can I just say, can we celebrate that? Can we, the follower of Jesus ruthlessly and humbly follows truth into every field and every endeavor. And science answers questions, but faith answers questions that science can't. And faith answers the big questions. The big questions of the Bible, the first one, where are you? Am I my brother's keeper? Genesis 18, I've loved the interaction with some of you. I shared with you uh, really in vulnerability that so sometimes I don't have all the answers to some of your questions, to some of my own questions, but I love the question of Je- uh, from Abraham in Genesis 18. God, won't you always do what is just? God's always gonna do what's just. I don't hyperventilate. I don't freak out when I don't know something because to me, faith is not a puzzle that I quickly solve. It's a mystery that leads me to a relationship. And let me tell you, the one that has a relationship with me, the one who loves me and created me and called me, to be his own is a good God and will always do what is right. And we will let each other down time and time again. And it, listen. <laughs> Someone texted me yesterday, I was trying to write the sermons, like, hey, why do you think people are, some people are leaving the faith, and time and time again, it's because of a leader, it's because, and Jesus talked about hypocrisy. One of the things that bolsters my faith is Jesus' teaching on hypocrisy, and people want to get out of something where they see someone that's let them down, or hurt them in some way, and there's so much hurt. There's so much hurt. But with our faith, listen, we need to add to our faith knowledge. What does that mean? Let me give you an example. You know, uh, there's a writer, an Old Testament scholar, Walter Bumgarner, and he says that in particularly looking at the Psalms, all the wisdom literature, but particularly the Psalms, he says there's three phases that the biblical writers go through. And I, I think you do too. Uh, I do. I'll be honest. I do. He calls it orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And that's why when people are losing faith, leaving faith, deconstructing, why we need to be gentle, why we need to have reverence, why we need to do what Jude says, only one chapter in Jude, verse 24 says, be merciful to those who doubt, and that's been my call during this series, it will continue to be, let's be merciful to each other. Some people are disoriented, you may be here today, you may be watching from home, and your faith is very disoriented, and look, there's no comfort in giving you a hug and telling you that it's the normal part of life, but it is, I mean, it happens, and if if it's true of the biblical writers, then isn't it going to be true of us? But then he talks about the reorientation. And so here's a little bonus content. I'll I'll do this really fast. There's a writer that I know is one of the best thinkers out there. And he's, when I read his works, he helps me add to my faith knowledge. And that's my challenge to you, but he has gone through this and talks about his disorientation, how he's reoriented his faith. Uh, put these up, if you will, six things that brings him back that bolsters his thinking. Uh, this, Christianity is the only historically based transcendent belief system. The Bible is not a collection of theories or idealized tales that make the central characters into glossy heroes. It is, a large, it is in large part a gritty, unglamorous, and often distasteful retelling of historical facts. The Bible smacks of realistic fact, not idealized fiction. Come on, you ever thought about that? Like, come on. Christianity, too, is the only belief system that's not dependent on a person earning his or her salvation. This is critical because there's no way I could even live up to my own flawed standards, much less those of a perfect God. Three, Jesus is by far the most influential person to ever live and is also the only person who rose to enduring prominence after claiming to be God. Something happened 2,000 years ago that transformed Jesus' friends and family from skeptics into believers to devout, uh, so devout they were willing to give up everything, including their lives, in brutal fashion to profess His divinity. Four, virtually everyone in the Bible, including the heroes, are truly authentic, completely flawed people. People who often behave like morons. They are prideful and educated, self absorbed liars, adulterers, murderers, and thieves whom God rescues repeatedly despite their mistakes. God's love for them gives indescribable hope to all people, including those who act like idiots, like you. Five, Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, was transformed nearly instantaneously from prominent Jewish religious leader who actively persecuted Christians to a follower of Jesus. He lost everything, his status, his career. He had devoted his life to his wealth, his comfort, his friends, and eventually his life claiming the divinity and kingship of Jesus. You can't outsend Paul nor out-suffer him either. Like Paul, many of the most prolific followers of Jesus were once the most broken six. When combined, the two core doctrines of sin inherit human depravity and the imago Dei made in God's image explain and predict the world better than anything else. Let's add to our face of knowledge. Have it let's like let's do that like I know I know it's cynical you we're supposed to be cynical and we're supposed to selectively point out all the bad and the anti-intellectual stuff but I'm just saying come on like come on so that was a Roberts bonus not just a recap. Today, here's the third in our series. We're going to talk about an aspiring faith story. So we're going to go to the sea today. We're going to go to the sea and we're going to go and follow up. Laura saved me some time by already reading our scripture and saying a prayer for us, but we're going to be here in Matthew 14, to 33, in a story that a lot of you, because you're in the early service and you're in church, you probably heard this story a few times. Probably most of you at least are, are oddly familiar with the essence of the story, but the sea in biblical times was a place of mystery and terror. Uh, some of you know Psalm 46. It's some of the most beautiful language in the Psalms in all of poetry historically. God is our refuge and strength. He is what? Can anybody say it with me? He is a very present help in time of trouble. We got so many English translations. I don't know where I'm going. Right? God is that yours, lord God is is our refuge and our strength. He's a very present help in time of trouble. And then he says next, Psalm 46, verse two and three. But if, if the mountains, if the if the earth was 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 shaken, if the mountains fell into the sea, if the oceans, if they roared and foamed, and that's an example. All throughout Scripture, we see a real reverence for or even terror of the sea. It was a place of mystery and depth and darkness and unknowing. And even today, with all of our navigational systems and our navies and and the engines that we have for our boats you can see that the sea is terif- terrifying for us what's the world's most dangerous occupation anybody know survey shows the most dangerous occupation is a deep sea fisherman So if someone invites you to the deadliest catch, you can watch the show, but if they invite you to to fish for crab in Alaska, you may want to say no, it's the deadliest thing, one of the most deadly things that you can do, at least occupationally. But we have that today, even in our modern day, there's something about the sea that can make us scared. But I want us to draw some lessons from this story today about faith. And the first is this, note takers, that's your cue, the first is this, it's, discerning God's presence. Notice Laura read for us this account that Matthew gives and the accounts in the gospels are of course similar but there's some differences and I love it. Luke is probably a Gentile and he calls it the Lake Gennesaret and Matthew and Mark and John are Jews and they call it the Sea of Galilee and in mark's account he he slides this in that is jesus passed them by which is interesting even in matthew's account that we read you have to wonder why was jesus walking on the lake at that time like why are you you ever see anybody out really late You're like what are you what are you doing out what are you, what are you doing here why are you here at this time and that's a part of the story don't miss that element of this like why are you and mark says hey he was, he was passing them by. And you're thinking, is this a, a missed opportunity for them? And the, the language there that takes us back to the, to the prior testament is found it's a theophany it's a a defining moment if you will there are moments where God says hey I'm going to conceal and I'm going to reveal but here I am and I'm going to pass you by. God passed Moses by in the cleft of the rock God passed Elijah by on the mountain and here Peter walking on water all the disciples but remember Peter we know famously is the one who actually got out of the boat we'll talk about that in a minute Peter contrasting one with the likely 11 but why was Jesus walking Lord if it's you and let me ask you had you asked that question Lord if it's you Lord is that you and the disciples had mistaken him for a ghost and Matthew wants to make it clear hear me today Matthew wants to make it clear to everyone who's willing to, to understand is that frequently God will come to you when you least expect it when the water's rough when the waves are high, when the wind is strong. He'll be in the storm. Writer Dale Bruner uh, puts it this way more succinctly than me. Human extremity is the frequent meeting place of God. Remember, Peter would go on and write a couple of letters to the early church in the midst of Nero's reign, AD 60 plus. And Peter would say to us, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeals. Now, for you and I, fiery, F-I-E-R-Y, is kind of playful and somewhat metaphorical. It's just an adjective to describe. But for for them, it was fire-e, like F-I-R-E hyphen. I'm making up words, but it was fire. It was fire. Christians were burned. But Peter would say before his own death, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeals, the places of human extremity. When The water and the wind and the waves are strong and rough and high. That could be the very place. But time and time again, we think when those things happen that God's nowhere to be found. Anybody? Like this tragedy, this roughness, this choppy water, God's left me. And it's the very place, human extremity is the very place where God would want to show up. This story of faith, this inspiring story of faith for all peoples, we can start the story and look about discerning discerning God's presence is he there? nothing will be more important nothing will mark your life or mine uh, more than this second thing uh, that we see in this story beyond discerning God's presence is detecting God's call detecting God's call he says common I love Peter Uh, Peter kind of had a sense that, though he was impulsive he had this sense that he needed to be obedient. Like he needed to make sure it was Jesus. He needed to hear God's voice. And so Peter, for all the impulsitivity that we give him and the flair for the dramatic and the rush headlong and be the first person, Peter, at least in a moment, had this sense of like waiting. It wasn't a long wait, I don't think, but just, Lord, is that you? And you bid me to come, it's sort of the King James there. You, you tell me, give me the command and I will come to you. And Jesus extends this invitation. Can you think of what Matthew uh, just said prior to Matthew 14 and Matthew 11, 28 to 30? Some of you know this. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me. When we come to Jesus, we can find spiritual rest apart from our striving. For any of you that are on the performance treadmill, just a couple of weeks ago, kicking back to the Olympics again, this Olympics, there was a lot of criticism for someone uh, who pulled out of events because of mental health issues. And opinions just flew on social media. Imagine that—first time in history, opinions flew on social media, and people took a side. And people—it was just kind of, kind of crazy. And I I thought ill-fitting to be able to do that. But in 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 Olympics, really mirrors achievement and preparation and hard work and passion and follow-through and don't you quit, don't you quit. And so people chimed in and Jesus says, you can come to me and you can find rest. But listen, Jesus is inviting Peter to come on the water to walk with him. But what does it mean to walk with him? Can I say that walking with Jesus, it necessitates a call. He's going to call you to be a part of something bigger than your own stuff. Bigger than what you want to live for, bigger than the cotton candy emptiness of what the world has to offer. He says, Come to me and you will find rest. Come, remember the initial call? Come and follow me. And they dropped their nets, talking about impulsive, and they followed him. Come and follow me. Come and find rest. Come be with me and come help change the world. And Jesus invites us to do that. Jesus knew that Peter was a fisherman and he didn't say, Stop being a fisherman. He just said, as you fish, become also, in addition to, while you are fishing, become a fisher of man. And he said, he would say in Matthew 16, two chapters later, I'm going to build the church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it, but you will partner with me, and you will be a builder. This is the call. Let me ask you, part of the journey of faith is to detect God's call in your life. What's God like I remember reading from a contemplative writer a few years back, and she asked the question, what does God do all day? Isn't that a question that a kid asks? And probably part of our problem you're in mind, and the reason we're dry sometimes in our devotional life is we don't ask kids questions. So think about it. What does God do all day? Who's going to know the answer to that? But, you know, the, the Greeks had this idea that the gods, plural, polytheistic, that the gods Where they just kind of hung out on Mount Olympus. That was the character of their gods, and it was like Leisure City. It was like the Eternal Palm Springs or Boca Raton. It was just a place, a great eternal retirement village. And the gods didn't work. Occasionally, Zeus would throw a thunderbolt, but otherwise, they didn't work. And the opening pages of the Bible, and all throughout, we see God working. God works. God is a worker. Think of all the metaphors in the Bible that describe God. God, he's a gardener. He's an artist. He's a potter, he's an architect, he's a builder, he's a shepherd, he's a king and he creates us from the very beginning of Genesis. We see him forming man and woman from the dust of the land and separating light and day and flinging stars into space. Yes, it was with the spoken word but he worked and God worked and look what Jesus said. Someone tried to trick him and uh, we won't get the context but in his defense, here's what Jesus said right here to them, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too working. When Jesus says come, when he says get out of the boat and walk on the water, he has a calling for you. What's the calling? The worker God, the God who works, is a God who says that you are, we are his workmanship. Anybody need to attach some value to their life today? Anybody need to reorient themselves with their identity? You are his workmanship, and he wants our lives to be on display. And like the characters of old, we'll, we'll have all of our messes. Remember last week we contrasted a jar of marbles with a bag of grapes. And marbles can be close together and they can shine a little bit. But grapes bleed and spill on each other. And though the marbles are approximate, the grapes, there's, there's more of a shared life and connection. And that's us. And we are to be God's workmanship uh, in all of our mess and all of our glory and like grapes squashed together that can produce wine for joy and festivity like we can we can be a product of what God is doing so let me ask you as you think about your faith journey don't just smile today when you leave in a few minutes and think "Ah, cool little story about Peter walking on the water think about discerning God's presence and think about detecting his call in your life hey Y'all know I'd like to do this. Take me seriously here, especially if you're young or if you're a parent or grandparent with a young person. A calling, a lot of times we always think about our vocation and what we do. For Peter, he was a fisherman. He would go on to partner with God in building the church, the first church that has the gates of hell. Look, a pandemic, it'll slow us down, but it ain't going to stop the church. There's a book called uh, about, um, about Vocation and Calling. About walking on the water, if you will. It's by Parker Palmer. He's a he's a Quaker. Y'all ever read a book by a Quaker? You're in for a treat. And the book is called Let Your Life Speak. And it's about vocation as calling. And it is so good. If anybody orders this, some of you are like, I never read books, but it looks really small. Okay, I'll take the preacher up on on this one. But it's just one of those, look, so good. Walking on the water means that you step out and you're following Jesus somewhere. He's gonna give you rest. But he's calling you to do something. You are his workmanship. Find that calling and live that life of faith. Okay, real quickly, a few more points from things that we can draw out. Uh, One is, besides discerning God's presence and detecting his call, it's overcoming fear. When Peter saw the wind, that was the problem, wasn't it? Like, oh, he had the faith to get out of the boat, but then he saw the wind. And all you got to do is live and you'll see the wind. Uh, Think of a new adventure. Think of something just beginning. Think of the excitement and adrenaline. Think of the freshness. Think of the the blue skies. The blue skies where everything is bright because you're just beginning. And then what happens? Plans can fail and people can let you down. Raise your hand if you ever had that happen. Plans fail, people let you down. Anybody? Anybody had plans fail, people let you down? Doesn't it happen? Look, we see the wind. The wind is reality. It's obstacles. It's setbacks. And it happens. Lauren just led us in a song and uh, said something about uh, yes and amen. And I was thinking of, of 2 Corinthians 1.20. It says that in Jesus, every promise in him is a yes. Now don't misunderstand that because some of us lose our faith because we're attaching promises to Jesus that he never made. But listen, when he makes a promise, he's always good. And in Jesus, it's a yes. The win for us Is the obstacles, it's the realities, it's the setbacks. God told Moses to get out of the boat, if you will, like he told Peter. God told Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my labor force go uncompensated. And by the way, so that they could leave and serve a God that Pharaoh, the hard-hearted Pharaoh, doesn't believe in. Oh, and Moses, tell the stiff-necked people that are tough and are so tempted to turn away from you. Their faith is double-minded. Tell them to wander in the desert for a while where there won't be any good buffets. And Moses said what? Anybody know what the Bible says? Moses said, here I am, send Aaron. And Jonah, God said to Jonah to get out of the boat. God said, hey, Jonah, sort of get out of the boat. He said, hey, go to Nineveh, the most violent and corrupt city at the time. And he said, tell these people, they they don't know who you are and they don't honor me. They're violent and they're corrupt and they're pillaging And tell them to repent or die. And Nineveh, y'all know what the Bible says, Nineveh, uh, Jonah rather said, hey, is there another well heading in the opposite direction? And every time God would tell someone like Jeremiah, he would tell Jeremiah, hey, go and preach to these people. But the people wouldn't listen. The people just disregarded. Look, I don't want to wade into a mess here, but I talked to a doctor yesterday, and there's frustrated medical community out there. Uh, Mississippi doctors, many of them are crying out, and they're frustrated because people aren't listening to them. I'm like, hey, that's kind of like ministry. You want to have coffee? We can talk about this. But Jeremiah, I said, people don't, y'all don't listen to me. You're pretending that you're listening to me. But uh, look, Jeremiah preached to these people, and they didn't do anything that he said, and he was known as the weeping prophet. So Mississippi has doctors working hard and crying because people aren't listening to them. Hey, Jeremiah had that as well. And look, there's going to be wind. There's going to be wind. There's going to be pharaohs. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world. And Moses, God said, get out of the boat and go talk to him. Nineveh, the most violent, corrupt city. Go tell them to repent or die. Those are tasks that we don't want. And every time God would tell someone like Abraham to leave home or or Gideon to lead an army or Esther to defy a king. Or Mary to give birth to the Messiah. Every time that God would tell someone to get out of the boat. To walk on the water. To be obedient to their calling. To his calling in their life. The scripture never wants to someone say. Yep. I got this. Not one time. You're not going to find that in the Bible. Y-U-P. Yep. I got this. Nobody says that in all the scripture. They tremble in the boots. They tremble in their boots. And their sandals rather. And they just see the wind the reality, the obstacles and all. And so this faith story and your faith story, whatever it is for you, whatever it will be, is about overcoming fear. How are you doing? Not just discerning his presence, detecting his calling and overcoming fear, but there's also this idea of the obvious one. It's risking faith. This is what we love about the story. This is the memorable part, sort of the sexy part, if you will. Um, Peter got out of the boat and he walked on water just before we go far here uh, the word walk Peter walked you know walking is important we talk a lot about the prophets because as you look at our world today and all of the injustice like we need some prophetic truth in our day we need some Amos and some Isaiah and we even need some Jeremiah we need uh, some of this we we need some Micah 6 8 that you and I are called to do justice love mercy and what? walk humbly good job 9:30 to walk humbly but you think about it there's a lot of walking in the bible before peter's walk in matthew 14 to jesus on the water it says that god walked with them in the garden in the cool of the day it's august 15th and i walked to church today there's a cloud cover i said god i'm going to walk to church seven tenths of a mile I'm, I'm coming to work today and i s- sweated a little bit but i walked God walked with them in the garden in the cool of the day. Abraham took Isaac and took a walk to, to Mount Moriah. Moses took the Israelites and did a walk through the Red Sea. Joshua led them in a triumphant walk around Jericho. The disciples took this inspiring walk to Damascus, And Paul took an interrupted walk to Damascus. Walking is important. And God calls you, I know it's a simple thing, but he calls you to walk with him. He doesn't call you to just sit there. He doesn't call you. Now it's safe there, isn't it? This is when we begin to wonder about the other 11 disciples. But they stayed there. They weren't sure. Maybe they didn't do they didn't have enough time to do a cost benefit analysis. Maybe the the logic wasn't raw and real enough for them. Maybe they were just scared. Maybe they liked their comfort. Do you think Americans do you think we like our comfort? Any opinions there? Just go in the average American home and grab a remote control and hide it and see what happens, right? Abject terror. The place shuts down. I mean, I think people become cannibalistic, honestly. That's just my opinion. I'm sure there's stories of that that we can read about on the news. But we love our comfort. We love our lazy boys. We love our remote controls. We like things the way we like them. But the Bible is a story of people walking. God walks with us and he calls you to walk with him and walk to him. And it's a walk of faith. Jesus would tell a story about a CEO and three employees. Anybody, a company leader, a CEO and three employees. And all three employees, uh, also in Matthew, all three employees were given lavish opportunities. Stop for a second. Everybody in this room is different. Everybody has different opportunities, but all of us have opportunities. And on a spiritual plane, which matters most, God has a lavish opportunity, opportunities for you. It's out there for the waiting. Can I say it? It's out there. God has opportunities for you. Whether you're really scared now or not, there opportunities are there. And in this story, the CEO gives all three of them this lavish opportunity, but one of them gets rebuked harshly by Jesus. Does that mess with your categories of Jesus? Some of you want to bend Jesus into like your Jesus, but Jesus is harsh with them. There's criticism about this one servant. Why? It wasn't something that he had done. He didn't steal or embezzle or defraud. He didn't steal, embezzle, or defraud. He just merely buried the talent. He buried the opportunity that God had given given him. He did nothing, and Jesus called him wicked and lazy. So I'm going to do that this week. If I see someone not using their talent, I'm going, to, I'm going to call them out at Fondren right here up on the third floor. I'm going to say, wicked and lazy servant. Be, I'm done with you. Wicked and lazy. Nobody's laughing. That's okay. Very uncomfortable in here right now. But Jesus says you're wicked and lazy. But you know, he also says, and here's your opportunity. You ready for it? I'll be positive for a second. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. But you'll only be called that. Well done and good, faithful servant. When it's all been said with the ultimate performance review, everything about the ultimate performance review the ultimate performance review is the goodness of Jesus over you, and that every reward that would follow has to do with the way you got out of the boat and walked to Jesus and use the gifts that He has for you. So, discerning His presence, detecting His calling overcoming fear, risking faith, and we got to hit this before we close, surviving failure. Scripture tells us, Lord read it, you were listening, Peter, who got out of the boat and walked to Jesus, then this happened, beginning to sink, he cried out. It's kind of like a process, isn't it? Like when I sink, I just sink. I need to lose some weight or something. I just sink. But Peter was beginning to sink. And so he was, he was shifting his focus, and he cried out. Like, you know, there's failure. And then there's being noticed that you failed. You ever fallen down? What's the first thing you do when you fall down? Like you slip, you fall. What's the first thing you do? Am I okay? Did anybody see me? Right? And that happens. I, I've stumbled going up the stairs the other day and a couple of people saw me. I'm like, man, I want them to think I'm like smooth. And it's just, they saw me. And that's the way we are with our failure. But take that at a bigger level, and that's what we see in him. A few few shots real quick, photos of folks uh, who've lived. This is Jonas Salk, and he developed the vaccine for polio. But he, uh, if you will, quote-unquote, failed 200 attempts at it. And ask about it, he he didn't say, hey, I, I failed 200 times. I mean, he invented the polio vaccine. But he said, I just found 200 ways that it didn't work but then he found the way. Here's my guy, Winston Churchill. He uh, garnered the courage in the era of Nazi appeasement in the mid-1930s to stand up. And it was political suicide, historians say. And when asked uh, how he got the courage. Of course, he mentioned the allies of the United States, props to United States of America. But he also mentioned uh, grade school when he had to repeat a class and someone was learning about his history and said, Winston Churchill, you failed a grade. And he said, I didn't fail the grade. I just repeated it a second time for reinforcement. Third figure, is someone maybe you haven't heard of, unlike the other two, this is Sir Edmund Hillary. He made a bunch of attempts to scale Mount Everest. I'm reading some of your lips. You have heard of him. And he tried to attempt many, many times to scale Mount Everest, and he successfully did it. But there's a legend that he stood at, uh, toward the base of the summit or the beginning of the base of the summit, and he defiantly pointed toward the mountain, and he said, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to defeat you because you're as big as you're going to get, but I'm still growing. You see, when you climb, you fail, and when you fail, you learn, and when you learn, you grow, and then you climb the mountain, or you walk on the water, or you step out, and you use the spiritual gift that God has given you, or you find the calling, and you live a life of faith. Why does faith matter? Y'all, y'all we're going to die through a slow death through boredom and stagnation unless we live this journey of faith. So as we close, and Lord, y'all can make your way up the team because I want to kind of preach on time and honor the clock. Uh, Let's talk about focus because Peter, when he discerned the presence of God, when he detected God's calling in his life, when he was learning about overcoming fear and risking faith and surviving failure, it had to do with his focus. There's some principles that in psychology they talk to us about. Uh, Remember, all truth is God's truth. And when there's science, it's a good thing. There's a law of cognition. The experts tell us the way you think determines your life. Now, I would reject that if it wasn't in the Scripture. But just read Proverbs 4. You'll find it there. Read Romans 12:1. Read Philippians 4, 8. You'll find it there. The way you think determines your life. It really, really does. The law of exposure is similar. When you wed the two together, they're powerful. And some of you are depressed and lonely and hurting and not living a life of faith. You're gripped with fear. By the way, nothing will sink you faster than fear. It's a law of exposure. Your mind will think about what is most exposed to. Like, you probably know that. You have some subconscious sense of that. But are you meditating or are you just worrying? Are you training your mind to let the Word dwell in you richly? Is that, is that your jam or not? Isaiah 26.3, one of my faves. Y'all know this? You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you and all whose thoughts are fixed on you, the law of cognition the law of exposure what scientists are figuring out about human behavior, the scripture writers knew long ago the focus of your life, here's what I love about our Savior their focus in the end of this story, now it would be up and down it would be a jagged line to the left, to the right up and down, just like your life is and mine the writers it says that that, that Matthew says truly they worshiped him as the son of God here's what I love about the Savior here's what I love about the Savior in this story he pulls Peter up and he pinpoints what's wrong where's your faith I love that about our Savior like we just want to we probably want a guy that'll pull us up but here's a Savior who loves us so much he'll pull you up and he'll pinpoint the problem for you lovingly and constructively because he knows when you climb you fail When you fail, you learn. When you learn, you grow. And he's got something out there for you. And so as we close, before we pray and sing, give and go, consider Psalm 107 about the sea. You know, these disciples with him, they all all knew a lot about the law, the prior writings. Jesus loved the Old Testament, by the way. It's important for you to know that if you don't. I bet they knew this, and then they were just going to learn, like really learn about it. Isn't that like us? Some went off to sea, Psalm 107, verse 23. Some went off to sea in ships plying the trade routes of the world. They too observed the Lord's power in action, His impressive works on the deepest seas. He spoke, and the winds rose, stirring up the waves. Their ships were tossed to the heavens and plunged again to the depths. The sailors cringed in terror. They reeled and staggered like drunkards and were were at their wit's end. Lord, help! They cried in their trouble. And he saved them from their distress. He calmed the storm to a whisper and stilled the waves. What a blessing was that stillness as he brought them safely into harbor. Let me pray. Would you stand? Father, help us with this ancient story to our lives today, Lord, to discern your presence, to detect your calling, to overcome our fears, to risk in faith, to survive failure, to learn more about our focus. Lord, you give us life and you give us this peace when we shift our focus to you and your character. Oh, Lord, we're, we're, so much futility and frustration if we think faith is some puzzle that we're going to quickly solve. It's a mystery that leads us into a relationship. And yes, amidst the wind and water and waves, the immensity and expanseness and vastness of the sea, your power is greater. And Lord, may it be activated in us as we activate faith in you, in Jesus Christ. Bless the giving. Bless our generosity. Lord, let us not hold back money. Let us not hold back walking towards you on the water with our finances in every area of faith. Lord, allow people today, everyone that's willing, allow people's lives to speak, to speak of faith, to speak of your word. Bless these tithes and offerings. And Lord, may we honor you in Jesus. Amen.